Welcome to Funny, They Don't Look Jewish, where Judaism appears in the panels. Our purpose is to find characters, stories, and issues of comics that explore explicitly Jewish content. I'm Henry Bernstein. I'm Brandon Bernstein. No, no relation. relation. Hey, Henry, we are back. Yeah, and it didn't even take six months to say that. <laughs> yeah, it's really exciting to... to what, what did it take us a month since the last episode? Yeah. Maybe a little more, eh, yeah. something like that. Time to, to talk about comics. Time once again to talk about comics. You know, you mentioned last time, Henry, that you were feeling a little not burnt out, but sort of like we'd maybe come to an end and all of a sudden you were reinvigorated by some of what we found. Um, and new to all of our listeners is the fact that we found a little more along the same theme. Uh, last time we did a Marvel deep dive into Captain America's Jewish friends. And so how about we look at some DC Jewish friends? This is like the episode I've been waiting for. I've been however many we've done. It's like, finally, my time to shine. <laughs> finally, it's Henry's time to shine. Um, all supermenches, this is your call because we are diving into the Kryptonians themselves, the start of the superhero movement as we know it. We are looking at Jewish supporting characters within the pages of both Supergirl and the big boy himself. Superman. I'm so happy to be talking about Superman. I can't tell you. <laughs> You're wearing the appropriate shirt and celebration and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Wearing the, the uh, crest of Al, of the House of Al. From the House of David to the House of Al. <laughs> I guess when we were talking last time about Captain America, and I, yeah, I was feeling kind of like, well, I go, how much more is there to say? And then, you know, we found this treasure trove of Captain America issues, which as I've asked around around the comic book community, Apparently, it was pretty well known that this was a thing that happened. And, you know, if people for about from about 10 years older than us who were reading comics in the 70s, 70s and 80s, it was like, yeah, Bernie Rosenthal, Captain America's Jewish girlfriend. So, right. <laughs> so, um, so that's kind of interesting. But I really thought we would never have an opportunity to talk about Superman. You know, the, the whole our whole premise for this, which we talked about from episode one, is that like these creators were all Jewish with very Jewish stories, American Jewish stories and um, European Jewish stories, but there's nothing Jewish in the pages. And like, you don't get more Jewish than Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster in terms of cultural identity in 1938 for, you know, two 19 year olds. But again, there hasn't we haven't seen much in the pages of those comics. So I was so excited to find both something uh, from Supergirl and then from Superman. It's just it's great. Yes, and just like my parents would make me do on Hanukkah when I wanted to open all the presents the first night and they tried to instill <laughs> patience in me. We're going to delay the gratification of Superman himself just a little longer and we'll start um, with Supergirl because it turns out in the 1980s she also had some Jewish neighbors. Um, in the, this case, uh, we're going to be looking at Mrs. Berkowitz and a rather disturbing supervillain by the name of Black Star. Uh, so these are our Jewish characters we're diving into. Henry, you want to tell us what our first issue is? Yeah, we are looking at Supergirl Volume 2, number 13, November 1983, Echoes of Time Gone By, written by Paul Kupperberg, penciled by Carmine Infantino, inked by Bob Oxner, colored by Tim Zuko, 
lettered by Ben Oda and edited by Julia Schwartz. Of course, this is okay. this is great. I, I this was actually collected in two trades uh, about five years ago, and I bought it. And I was like, oh, great. I've never read these super this very short series from it's about 24 issues, this very short series from the 80s. I'm going to check it out. And like right away, <laughs> there's a Jewish character. And I was so excited. This is before you and I were talking about this, but it was not that much before. That's so exciting. You get to dive back into it and see it. We've we've yeah. had a lot of conversations about the Jewish content we read when we were young, and it just like somehow missed. We weren't thinking through this lens, right? But and this I, time, this time I didn't miss it. Like I, I saw it. I clocked it. I was like, "This is amazing." I, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're able to bring it up and say, "Supergirl has this Jewish name." But yeah. you started to talk about it. But just to give a little bit of context for us, is there anything we should know about? Supergirl Volume 2, where are we in DC history? What is going sure. on? Like, What is going to ground us in the story? That is the nicest thing you've ever asked me to give you a, a <laughs> ask you where, <laughs> where we are in, in DC history. Um, This is 1983, so this is pre-crisis, which means that is the universe with Earth 1 and 2, Earth 2, multiple universes, going back to 1938 when Superman first debuted. Um. And this is this is considered the Bronze Age. So this is the end of that. The crisis on Infinite Earths is about to happen. For about 30 years, Supergirl was like Superman's young cousin that didn't get to do much and was like a side character and or in like the Superman family comics, like all throughout the 50s and 60s. So she gets her own series here. She moves to Chicago to go to college. And until this point, she had like been in an orphanage and kind of diminutive. And here was sort of like a big deal, like woman of the eighties going to seek her fortune in Chicago. So that's where we are. I probably said more than I needed to, but <laughs> no, it was great. It was so wonderful to hear that. I actually, even though I knew it, I know crisis is what 1986, if I'm remembering correctly, or 85, 85 and Superman is rebooted in 86. Okay. So we have, that's where I was getting it from. So this comics from 1983, but for some reason in my mind, I was like, clearly this must be a post crisis. We're getting into the eighties, but we're actually really helpful to remember. This is before that. This would be like at the same time as like, Teen the new Teen Titans by Wolfman and Perez is huge. Like great, the, the DC answer to Marvel's X Men at the time, right? Like you can you can picture where you are in like 1983 with the X Men. So this is like DC. That's like the big thing happening in DC. So it was like a big deal for Supergirl to get her own book in which she was doing something modern and um, adult. Uh, until this point, since her invention, she had been like a kid, basically. So um, wow. that, that that's where we are. And she has, unfortunately, a rather difficult, not entry into adulthood, but boy, she is entering adulthood. She is not pulling any punches in terms of dealing with some of the difficulties. We're starting off right away on page five with her neighbor. This is Mrs. Berkowitz. And Mrs. Berkowitz reveals that sometime the day or the night before, um, her door had been defaced with a swastika. So we've seen this before in a few comics, but we we basically have not for the first time in our series, Nazi graffiti 
defacing a Jewish home or place of worship. Um, it's unfortunately common in real life in terms of an example of anti-Semitism. But Mrs. Berkowitz is sharing it with her neighbors, and she has another neighbor, this woman named Joni, who's trying to assure Mrs. Berkowitz it's just some stupid kid's joke, uh, to which Mrs. B gives us an incredible response. A joke? That's what we said in Poland almost 50 years ago. Who's going to hurt us? This is our country. We belong here. They didn't care that we belonged. They took us, crammed us into boxcars like animals, branded us like cattle. And as she shows Joni the numbers on her arm, on her wrist, marking her as a survivor of the camps, sent us to living hells where they killed you in their showers or worse, let you live to die a little day by day. Joni responds saying, I know, I know. And then incredible response, Mrs. B, just like not letting Joni rest for a moment. You don't know, child. Nobody who wasn't there could. could. At first, it was just the work of a small group of madmen. But the maddest of them all became master of a country. And because he decreed the Jews must die, millions did. Millions, and my Rachel and Jaime. Oof! So, yeah. like, right away. I mean, I'm sure that we've, as you were saying, we've we've seen this character in earlier issues, but suddenly we're just struck with the immediacy of how this defacement of her door brings her back to some very direct loss. Mrs. Berkowitz is like Anna Kapelbaum. Um, a survivor of the Shoah, a survivor of the Holocaust, and she lost direct family members. She lost her husband and daughter. One piece I do want to make sure to bring up, in that monologue, she was talking about how the, she and the other Jews in Poland felt like, this is our country, we belong here. And I know in my own experience, in rabbinical school, we would often have conversations in history classes of is the American Jewish experience actually unique or is it just the latest in many Jewish experiences? Meaning the Jews of Spain and the golden age of Spain, they felt at home in Spain in a very significant way. Uh, the Jews of Germany in the 20th century felt at home in Germany in a very significant way. And I don't bring that up to say who knows what can happen in the U S with anti-Semitism, but rather to say, um, from our vantage point, we view it as, wow, Poland, what a terrible place for Jews because we right. know the ending of the story. But right. the reality is there was incredibly rich Jewish history in Poland for roughly a thousand years preceding the Holocaust. There yeah. were 900 to a thousand years of rich history with certainly highs and lows, but some of those highs were incredible. Early Jewish communities in Poland would refer to the country as Poline, um, which is actually from the Hebrew words po and lean. Po here, lean to rest or lodge. So in other words, Poline is like rest here. This is the country where we can rest. This is the land where we can be. It's also the name of the Poline Museum, a museum in Warsaw that is dedicated to the history of the Jewish community uh, within uh, Poland. And looking at the history, I, I, I went on a uh, on a trip back when I worked at Northwestern, um, and I led some students on an alternative break trip to Poland, and we spent time at that museum. It was incredible. It opened originally in 2013, um, and I cannot find the origin of this, but I really could have sworn that there was once a like folk belief that 
the Polish Jews loved Poland so much that they believed that if the Messiah ever came and a third temple was built, that literally pieces of Poland would like float up into the sky and move over to the land of Israel and join with the land of Israel. Like that's how important Poland was to the Jewish community there. It was not just a place to live. They were every bit as integrated with the land and with living there as we are today. There was maybe not as great relations, again, depending on the era, between Jews and their non-Jewish neighbors, but certainly Poland was home to these Jews, mm -hmm. and that is how Mrs. Berkowitz felt in the 1930s. As we continue on, Mrs. Berkowitz mentions that this is not an isolated incident. There's actually been a rash of these graffiti markings across Chicago, and because of that, she's worried that it's happening again. It, of course, being the Holocaust. So on page 12, Supergirl finally enters into things. She comes home from an adventure and turns on the TV to discover a news report about this wave of anti-Semitism that has indeed been sweeping Chicago. There are instances of synagogue vandalism, harassment of homeowners, and Supergirl is upset. Henry, could you read for us what it is that she says upon seeing this news report? My first instinct is to go and smash the people responsible for what's happening. But as disgusting as they are, they've got every legal right in the world to exist. And expose that venom they've mistaken for politics to anybody who wants to listen. But they'll cross that legal line. They're bound to, judging from their tactics. Thank you, Supergirl. This is <laughs> such a better reaction than Captain America gave at first, where he's just like, I can't do anything, right? Like. I uh, on the one hand, I'm frustrated that she's like, you know, it, it's kind of funny that Supergirl doesn't seem to care about legality with most supervillains she's fighting, right? <laughs> like, most times she's like, oh, oh, man, they legally have a right to villain. Like, that doesn't come up, but like, fine, whatever. Um, at least she's voicing her disgust and anger and lack of acceptance of this and saying, like, I'm watching them like a hawk. And the moment they step over the line, I'm going to be seeking justice against them. Yeah, and Supergirl, Superman, Captain America, these types of heroes are prone to the, well, they've got the legal right to say what they want, you know, kind of thing. Um, but I just like that Supergirl wants to smash things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. It's like... It, it, the pre-crisis Supergirl is like so, in many ways, like so demure and, you know, sweet. She's like, I want to smash them. Yeah, she would totally fit in in 2022. And with like, it's making me think of that book, Superman Smashes the Clan, right? Yeah, it's like, yes, with yes. racism and Nazis, like, you just yeah. smash them. You don't yeah. have to wait. It's so funny. But Henry, you were making an interesting point about this issue in comparison to, to last episode. What was that? Yeah, well, so we looked it up and this issue came out literally a year after Captain America 275 with kind of similar story beats with you know, superhero coming home and talking to their elderly friend who is a Holocaust survivor and then, you know, getting involved with the, the villains and sort of defending free speech or whatever. And so. Absolutely. Right. And then like just adding on that in Captain America, remember there was the whole neo-Nazi rally and the counter protest. Right. And we're going to be seeing in this issue that similarly, there's like a sort of white supremacist Nazi rally that's going to happen. Like they're very similar stories. Right. Right. And so I, I guess I'm wondering, like on the one hand, is it a cliche? Is this the only type of Jewish story you can tell is a Holocaust story? And then is the only type of Holocaust story you can tell one where there's 
an elderly Jewish lady befriending a young Gentile? Or is this a common story for many for many survivors? And I think I think actually the latter. Right, right, right. Like it feels very grounded in the experience of probably survivors living in various cities throughout the U.S. or in whatever country that they they move to. And I'd imagine, right, there's suddenly the 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 secret of discovering that you're a neighbor, right? Like I'd imagine people weren't rushing to the doors to tell everyone I'm a survivor who went through this experience. It wasn't necessarily common knowledge. And I'm actually wondering if here in the 1980s, was this a sort of like opening of the gates, opening of the floodgates moment where uh, did something happen in the early 1980s that made these stories either suddenly palatable or more welcome in public discourse? Like, I feel like it can't be a coincidence to suddenly have such similar stories in the comic books. And, you know, mouse is just around the corner. It's going to be coming out. I think it, I think, in 1986 right so so clearly comic books and just media in general actually bringing in the narratives of survivors is becoming more and more common in the 80s but i'm not an expert enough to know sort of what was that turning point what was the the the, yeah do, do you think like maybe cable news like the invention of cable news like 24 hour news cycle might have just being aware of more things in the world at a, all the time or something. Yeah, it could be that. I also wonder the degree to which it's sort of generational. And so you have survivors mm. of the camps and their children, right? So by the sixties, you've got the youngest survivors are in their twenties and, 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 you know, anyone who was 20 in 1945 by the mid sixties, they're, they're in their forties. So, so by the time you get to the eighties, you sort of have a generational shift, right? Like once you get to 40 years, roughly, uh, and there's actually, as we know from the Israelites wandering in the desert, 40 is frequently within Jewish history and tradition, um, a significant number representing an entire passing from one generation to the next. So I wonder if it's just that distance in time from the Holocaust that allowed people to talk about it more. Like, I wonder if it was too raw to discuss publicly any earlier than that. Yeah, could be. Well, let's keep going. Um, in a lovely way, we find that on page 13, the other residents in this building, they are all showing great allyship. Um, the other residents are talking about taking on those responsible themselves because they don't trust the police. The police are not going to help them quick enough. Uh, Supergirl in her civilian identity is trying to caution them. Don't give up your lives to this hatred. She's trying to encourage them not to take things into their hands. And then her neighbor, Cheryl says this incredible line, take a good look at me, Linda, in case you haven't noticed I'm black. And that means they're after me too. They're just waiting to wrap up one final solution before they start on another is all. Um, So we're seeing this really strong instance in the 1980s of sort of allyship connection, this idea that these struggles are the same, that um, people of color and Jews are both victims of neo-Nazis, right? Or both the sort of chosen targets. Right. I mean, this is serious stuff. This is like what we talked about last week. This is like kids were picking up this comic. Absolutely. In the grocery store. Like this is really, these are really real adult mature conversations in 1983. It's, it's on the pages of Supergirl, like a kid's comic drawn by Carmine Infantino. You, you know, you'd think, 
just she's not up to some silliness in these issues right as you said she's off to college and making it on her own in the city of chicago and dealing with some really real issues by the way i I wanted to say earlier when you know you read the narration of you know there's uh, of uh, there being a a, you know a series of anti-semitic attacks in chicago it's very jarring to read that in a comic, you know, and, and, and reflect on that, you know, it, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm from Chicago. I live in Chicago. You used to live in Chicago. That's all. I, I guess I shouldn't make that as an assumption that people, everyone knows yeah, that. But, but, <laughs> but it hits, it hits home, right? It like sort of hits home to think of it as being yeah. like, you know, we've talked about representation. So for you, especially like I lived in Chicago, but you're like grew up there and like, right. like Chicago is home in so many ways. And so the idea of like having Jewish representation, but via the, the, to have Jewish representation, but, through the vehicle of anti-Semitic attacks in your city, like it, it can make things a little scary and a little real. And, and, you know, makes you wonder about, you know, um, there were certainly Nazi marches in Skokie, as we know, in the area, like what, what year was the famous Nazi March in Skokie? 1978. Right. So, uh, the, the Nazi March in Skokie was in 1978. This is five years later. So it's clearly like living in living memory for Paul, I'm sure. Right. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it, what I, what I didn't mention earlier in the let's catch up everyone up to where Supergirl is. She, it says explicitly on the first or second page of this series of issue one in, on the North side of Chicago at Chicago university is so whatever made up university she's going to. Um, so it's like, it's, that's a Jewish area, especially in 1983. You know, so it could have been West Rogers park, which be very common to live in an apartment building with a Jewish neighbor. Mm. So, mm. you know, so just in terms of things that like really hit home for me. Yeah, one. of course. Um, despite living next to a Jewish neighbor though, on page 14, Linda is actually shocked when her elderly neighbor, Mrs. Berkowitz condones the behavior um, because Linda or Supergirl is convinced that this is just the actions of a few fringe lunatics this is this is not you know the the mainstream and mrs berkowitz responds don't you know your history child mine got how do you think it began last time except with a small band of maniacs and she holds up a newspaper showing what do you know there's a social reformist rally okayed for grant park and in this case uh social reformist is sort of a code for uh for nazi for neo-Nazi or white supremacist. Um, Grant Park, by the way, is the big park in Chicago where if a rally was being held there, that would be a big deal. Like it would get a lot of attention. Like it's sure. where like the blues festival and jazz festival is. It's it's where the Bulls, Chicago Bulls in the 90s had all of their rallies, you know. <laughs> and it's right. And it's where in recent years the women's march took place. Right. right? Absolutely. Like, it, it is the place. Yeah. Uh, I gotta admit, Henry, I'm a little frustrated and upset <laughs> at this point because no. Supergirls condoning like I just like I spoke too soon. She's as bad as Captain America. I hate it. She's all right. She is let, let me defend her a little bit. She is young. She's probably about 19 years old here. And, you know, she hasn't, 
she's been flying around with streaky like she hasn't exactly uh had the experience that her cousin has had over the years so maybe she is she's learning captain america fought in world war ii he doesn't have an excuse no fair point he saw it with his own eyes yeah 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 yeah. i want to cut her a little bit of slack but i mean yeah it's 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 disappointing to see your number one hero uh, for which the the comic you're reading is named doing this thing. So, you know, she's young and like, it's possible you know, she hangs around like, you know, her, her cousin and, and the fortress of solitude. Like maybe this is her first Jewish friend, although she was in the Legion of superheroes. So perhaps she knew colossal boy. Oh, that's really interesting because, Okay. Is the Holocaust still a big deal in the 31st century, <laughs> right? Be- because like, or is, is it just one of many horrible things that happened to the Jews? Because I'm thinking right. like, for us, we're so close to the Holocaust. It, it like, it looms so large. It casts such a long shadow, but there were things like the Crusades. There right. were things like the Spanish Inquisition. There were horrible pogroms for a hundred years pogroms yeah. that have happened. Yeah. That were like terrible and we kind of like just we're like yeah it's part of jewish history so if we're talking about what uh 10 centuries <laughs> in the future right like a thousand years in the future like is the holocaust like is that just ancient history to colossal boy maybe maybe he right. didn't know to bring it up because it like it would be as awkward and strange as if i had met someone who wasn't jewish and i'm just like let me tell you about them crusades well well let me ask you a question in the age of heroes, so let's say that you know in that world the Justice Society existed during World War Two with Superman, whatever. Yeah. Did and it was the Holocaust the last really super bad thing that happened to the Jews until the 31st century? Meaning, was there another thing as bad as that and the Crusades and everything? Because but but or is it that in the age of heroes no a hero superhero wouldn't let something like that happen again uh we're getting into such difficult like this is this is the hardest part of superhero where it's like it's escapism and then you know this is related but unrelated um some comic book publishers i think marvel kind of has this policy or at least some of its writers hold by it of like there's no magical curing cancer, right? It's like when you have Reed Richards and Tony Stark and Bruce Banner and all these like super geniuses in the Marvel universe, yeah. you would kind of ask like, why isn't any of them thinking about how to cure cancer? And there's a certain degree to which it's like, A, they obviously should. And yet the editorial mandate is like, it's too much of an FU to the people who die to cancer to then have it magically solved within the these comic right, books that are right, meant to sort of right. show the reality. So I feel like, you know, cause it wouldn't just be jewelry, right. It would be like sort of worldwide, right. Like it'd be like genocide world, basically right, in the Dude. world of the superheroes. Does that mean that in every comic book that we don't have anything right. that happens, right. Are there no more genocides? Are there no more right. tyrants taking over? But then you start to enter into things that like, Warren Ellis would write about in the authority where the only right. way that would probably happen is if superheroes start becoming a police state. Right. And now we're making our way like, I mean, it's not surprising we're coming up with this. We are in the 1980s. We're in a mad rush to right. the Dark Knight Returns and to right. Alan Moore's Watchmen and to all these comics that sort of bring up these points. But um, I think once you start really like picking 
at the uh, at the fabric, like the whole thing comes apart once you get into that. Because the only way it could work is if superheroes become very fascist very quickly. Right, 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 right. Which is the kind of superhero comics I don't like. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Well, uh, back in the superhero comics you do like, the one we're reading right now, on page 17, we have moved to the rally in Grant Park where a robed woman speaks. Who then is our enemy? I needn't tell you that. You do not need to hear the words from my lips to know the truth. All of us here recognize our oppressors as they have been recognized since the days of the pharaohs. All of us know we are under their heavy hand, an international conspiracy we need to cast off before. This is Black Star. She's cut off and she is... She's given real protocols of the elders of Zion energy, Henry. Oh yeah, she is. Uh, she is going about as deep as possible into some of these anti-Semitic tropes. Um, but I, yeah, yeah. I, I love. I just love Kara's. Uh, we got it. We got to stick. Pick. Pick a name. There's Linda Kara, Supergirl. <laughs> um, I yeah, Linda Lee. I love that she's like, my lord. I can't believe that racist filth that woman's spouting. Like she's pretty outraged. So. Right. It is nice. Unlike Captain America who sits there and is like, they have a right to say it. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, she's outraged by it. So in Black Star's speech, right, she mentions that it's been recognized since the day of the pharaohs. And that brings us right at the beginning of the book of Exodus when Melchadash al Mitzrayim, when we have a new, a new king, a new pharaoh over Egypt. In Exodus 1-7, there is this, this verse that says, uh, but the Israelites increased and swarmed. They multiplied and increased very greatly. So the land is full of them. And if we skip forward a couple of verses in Exodus 1.10, Pharaoh says in response to this, you know, this language that says literally they swarmed, like that, that verb from verse 7 of swarming, that's literal insect or bug or, or vermin language right so like the even in the torah it's sort of indicating the way that egyptians felt about the israelites about the jewish yeah. people and so pharaoh says let us deal shrewdly with them so that they may not increase otherwise in the event of war they may join our enemies in fighting against us and rise from the ground yeah it's it's pharaoh you know being the first like racist against physical like <laughs> recorded in in history you know on on a page i guess if it you know yeah it's, yeah it's just like it's what now we would call typical anti-semitism but you know comparing jews to vermin to swarms they're swarming you know and swarmy and um infesting right. infesting places they're you know this is the same stuff that Hitler was was saying um, absolutely right and then you know it contained within the exodus verse that I was just reading there's that basis of anti-semitic conspiracy right there in Pharaoh's words right the the idea of um we're nervous because if we fight other enemies they may betray us basically right from within like this idea of Jews being disloyal of Jews betraying that becomes this fear and that's sort of referenced in the idea of like this secret international conspiracy that like they're actually Jews are actually in control and are going to turn against you in this way right like you you just uh black stars just tapping into some really scary stuff that again is 
is rooted back to the very first instance of sort of uh, a group of people oppressing oppressing the Jewish people while claiming the Jewish people are oppressing them. Totally. As we continue on the next page, there is this ruddy bearded man who interrupts Black Star's talk and accuses her of spreading fascism and oppression. And she sort of responds, why would this guy care unless he's one of them? And then on page 19, in a, <laughs> the first time I saw it, I loved this page to no end because you just see this man ripping open his shirt to reveal the hairiest chest <laughs> a large star of david necklace as he says damn straight i am hate monger i'm a jew and so are they and it feels like such a like rallying point of pride um at which point a group of jewish protesters show up with weapons and assault and storm the stage yeah, he he looks like King David with the big star of David, and he's so red, you know, like King yeah. David is described as ruddy. Um, yes, and you know, it, it, it mostly it's usually in, interpreted that that meant da- King David had in the Bible had red hair and a red beard, but it could also just mean like rosy cheeked. But either way, this was like a cool panel. This was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's so cool until you turn the page. And they arrest him. Yeah, and it right. turns out he was an actor who was purposely hired to incite violence and stir it up. <laughs> and then you see a panel. The guy's not actually Jewish. He got no. hired to do it. He tosses the Star of David to the ground and stomps on it, breaking it and breaking my heart with it. Can Why I- did you have to take <laughs> a panel that I thought would I celebrate for years yes. and turn it into such heartbreak? It, it's it's unbelievable. It's one of I mean, kudos to the team here of Copperberg and Infantino because this was such a brilliant introduction to heel turn within just a few panels. It was incredible. I mean, one page. And- Absolutely, it just like it, it turned it around, and it's so reading in 2022. It's kind of weird to read about a protest and to see somebody who villainously was hired to stir up violence at a protest and to think about recent years in U.S. history with accusations flying that there are professional protesters being paid to show up, but it's not actually reflective. And like, it's really weird because what happened in the real world, it's like, it's full lies. And then here you're seeing like that, those kinds of tactics being used for, to uphold forces of fascistic evil. Like there's this weird sort of, um, uh, whiplash that I'm sort of experiencing as I'm looking at it in the lens of 2022, but it's, it's, as you said, certainly effective. Yeah. So we continue our story. That's the end of that issue. And we continue on with Supergirl volume two, number 14 in December 83. Same creative team. Yep. Same creative team. This issue is called starlight star bright black star rises tonight, which (laughs) must've been a uh, rejected, uh, oath of the Green Lanterns. <laughs> so on page one, the narration identifies Black Star as a Nazi. Just to catch the readers up, you got all the first issue to get introduced to it. And it's like, yeah, she's a Nazi. That's that's what we are. Um, and yet on page six, as Supergirl confronts Black Star, Black Star makes an accusation against Supergirl, claiming that she's a brainwashed flunky of the conspiracy. Uh, Henry, what does Black Star <laughs> say next? 
You are a fool for believing they are pitiful, put upon minority, believing their fairy tales of genocide, when we but wish to purify ourselves by exterminating them like the vermin they are. Uh, her dialogue is just so gross. I know, right? It's checklist style. We have globalist conspiracy, check. <laughs> Holocaust denial, check. References to Jews as vermins or rats, check. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He's she is winning her anti-Semite bingo card. Yeah, it's just exactly. Like all of them are being marked. So yeah, Black Star is pretty gross. On page eight, interestingly, after all of these comics where we get frustrated because the hero is like violence isn't the answer, we now see on page eight Mrs. Berkowitz telling Joni that um that other neighbor that she's not thrilled to see Supergirl fighting. She says, quote, Try to understand it is the violence that upsets me because it reminds me of the violence I lived through in Auschwitz and other places. And it, that, like, that just kind of hits me. Like the idea, it's not a superhero trying to moralize and saying violence isn't the answer. You, you're just as bad as them if you're violent, which is clearly like an egregious claim as Captain America had made. But like to see uh, a show a survivor be like, yeah, the violence is triggering and traumatic for me and brings me back to what I went through. Like makes sense to me. And here, I think this is the first time in these issues that we discovered which camp she was in, namely right. that she survived. Unlike, uh, uh, Anna Kappelbaum in Marvel. Was that a fictional one? Who was at a fictional camp? Here, yeah. she came out of Auschwitz. Yeah, yeah. Sorry if this is an obvious question, but what do you think she meant by and uh, other places? Just that, like, she probably had to move around a lot and might have been in multiple camps, or yeah, I was know. wondering if it was that, or I wondered, and maybe I made this up, but I feel like there was some point where the implication seemed to be that maybe she like escaped warsaw and went other places and then came back to auschwitz so uh -huh. maybe she was in other camps besides that and that's uh -huh. the implication but you're right maybe maybe it is like maybe she had a life full of much violence even beyond right. even beyond the show i don't know i don't know but i know that mrs berkowitz claims she just wants peace and then she goes back home to a swastika on her door and to Nazis in Grant Park telling the world that she's the evil one. And you just like, again, my, my heart broke in the last issue because of that panel, but like my heart's breaking here also of like yeah. this poor woman who just wants to be left alone and, and isn't bothering anyone and is being told that she is representative of like the truest evil in the world. Like that's just some insidious and gross anti-Semitism. Right. Right. Um, she and Joni continue talking on page nine. She, she claims she couldn't bear to go through another Holocaust. And so she shows a photo of her family. Um, she refers to how she thought she was overreacting back in 35 in Poland. And right. the first time I read this, I was like, why, why 1935? The Nazis right. don't invade until 39. This doesn't make, you know, I was very baffled by it. But as it turns out in 1935, as it turns out, there was a Polish um, statesman who served as chief of state named Joseph Clemens Pitsudski, who was pretty good for the Jews, but died in 1935. Um, and following his death, things were not quite as great for the Jews uh, due to his death 
the Great Depression and other things going on. And so it's the, the Jewish experience in Poland started to go downhill before the Nazis invaded. Mm-hmm. Mrs. B is sharing the story, and Joni responds to tell her that kind of talk freaks her out. Please, <laughs> please sit down and, and stop bringing it up. And my only response is really like, oh, F you and your fears, <laughs> Joni. Like, why are you making this about you? I, I cannot imagine the level of ignorance and privilege it would take to have someone sharing that with you and have you be like, this freaks me out. I don't want to hear about how your family was murdered in a genocide. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, so as we continue, a weird thing starts to happen on page 11 as Mrs. Berkowitz is convinced Black Star looks just like her daughter, Rachel. And so the math doesn't check out because her daughter would be significantly older, at least 40. And, and Black Star appears to be a very young woman. And so Joni also mentions that Rachel died when she was 11. But Mrs. B's response is, I never saw a body. It wasn't till after the war that I tracked my Rachel's records. They said she was killed in 41, but the camps often kept wrong records. Maybe someone else died and they mistakenly said it was Rachel. So she weirdly, in this Nazi supervillain, starts to think maybe this is somehow her daughter who she had thought died in Auschwitz in 1941. Mrs. B knows it sounds crazy and in her sort of defeated voice says, you're right, you're right. Why should Black Star be anything but scornful of me, a Jew? We pick up again on page 15 at the Congregation Beth Israel on Chicago's North Side, which means it's time for us to play our favorite game, Henry. Can we identify that synagogue? (laughs) Yes, there are Two in Chicago land area. <laughs> two Beth Israels, not one, but two Beth Israels. <laughs> yes, there's Temple Beth Israel, which is on Dempster Street in Skokie, Illinois. <laughs> okay. And there's, of course, Lincolnwood Jewish Congregation, AG Beth Israel. Oh my gosh. I love it. It's it's almost like yeah, even on a desert island, the guy goes and builds two Beth Israels. Right. The Beth Israeli prays that and the Beth Israeli doesn't. I mean in Spaceballs, when they need a name of a synagogue, what do they use? Sure, right. Temple Beth, Beth Israel. Love you, Dottie. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So we have this congregation on the north side of Chicago. Uh, narration mentions that membership is dwindling, the building is in disrepair, but Rabbi Nathan Zuber knows that it's better to feed the needy than to fix up the building. And we see this rabbi, Nathan Zuber, are the latest in our collection of comic book rabbis. We should make a list at some point, Henry, of all the different comic rabbis we've encountered in this podcast. But he's sitting at his desk, pouring over books, and this is the most Hasidic-looking rabbi I've ever seen. <laughs> like, large, white, flowing hair and beard, black clothes, black kippah. I can't tell if he's a rabbi or a wizard in a certain way. Yeah, he sort of looks like the wizard Shazam in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit like that. Um, it's really interesting because it's like this very Hamish-looking environment and sort of the sense of like, yeah, there's less interest in the building. Like, it's really about helping people. Right. Um, And page 16, we see these panels going back and forth between Black Star's forces assembling outside the synagogue to attack it, and Rabbi Zuber walking through the sanctuary, just sort of tending to the place. There's wooden folding chairs, there's a Nair Tamid hanging from the ceiling, there's an Amud ahead that is likely for Torah readings, it's even got a Stender on top. Yeah, it looks like a tiny little shtibel, like we've seen these um, in all these other, in these other comics, we've seen these sort of 
what sort of look like either from the outside or the inside these big built in the 1950s synagogues temples right and this is the first one we've seen where it's just like a looks like a tiny little storefront synagogue that you might see on the north side of chicago yeah so it's it's just kind of cool the um the modesty of it you know absolutely and it's nice to have a synagogue depicted in 1980s comics that also like looks like a humble synagogue as opposed to looking like a church, but just drawn with like right. a star of David. Right. You know, sometimes we've seen ones that it's like that. No synagogue looks like right. that. And also one, there's nothing inaccurate in this one. You know, how many times have we looked at a synagogue? Like, why do they have a four pointed menorah in the middle of the, you know, right, right, right. weird going on yeah, uh, here? It just looks like there's an aisle. There's clearly seats on either side facing a large table with a cover on it and kind of a stender on top of it. And he's walking under the eternal light, the near time. That's, that's it. That's a synagogue to me. I mean, the chapel, yeah. Shul, you know? Yeah. It's, it's pretty accurate. And Rabbi Zuber hears a door open, asks whoever it is, if they can help. And instead of getting a request for help, someone tosses in a Molotov cocktail. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, on page 17, Mrs. Berkowitz, whose first name is Ida, by the way, we haven't mentioned that until now, <laughs> she feels some dread that something is happening, and her gut instinct, she's feeling it in her kishka's hand rate, mm-hmm. and she is right because of the cocktail, um, but Bezrat Hashem, thankfully, thankfully, Supergirl is flying over the burning building and notices it in flames and goes, oh, a synagogue! <laughs> so on page 18, Supergirl flies in, encourages Rabbi Zuber to run away, but he's not running away. He's trying to go into the flames and responds, (laughs) save yourself. I must reach (laughs) the Torah. And then Supergirl (laughs) flies him into the building and grabs the Torah. That is a great super feat. That might be like top five super feat of all time is saving a Torah and the rabbi at the same time. You know, like Superman, that's a classic Superman move, you know, like as made famous by Superman, the movie catching the double jeopardy, the rescuing Lois and then catching the helicopter because the Superman, Supergirl, they always save the day. There's no either or for them. You know, they just just do both. And in this case, both was a Torah. I just, I, I love it. I think I made this joke when we were talking about it, but it's like, it, it makes me think of uh, Green Goblin at the end of the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie where he's holding Mary Jane and the bus full of children and he goes, now choose, <laughs> right? So I'm just imagining instead it's like Green Goblin holding a rabbi and a Torah. And it's like, all right, Supergirl, you must choose. Um, she doesn't have to make a choice. No, she saves, she them, saves both. them both. You know, because that's and what supers do. <laughs> that's what they do. That's it. And we're we're so delighted. And Rabbi Zuber is also delighted. He's he can't believe it. Yes, praise God, you have done a mitzvah, a great deed. <laughs> and I love the fact that we get the most liberal translation of the word mitzvah from the most orthodox looking yes. rabbi. <laughs> mitzvah, of course, is a commandment. Certainly considered a more general term for good deeds. We have this here. I love the feet too much to be too upset about, like to 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 pick too much at the translation. The rabbi is glad the holy Torah is safe, and he passes out. So, like, just again, great work, Supergirl. Such a cool moment. It, it, this is like a dream come true moment for me, seeing Supergirl save a rabbi and a Torah in, in one moment. You know, one fell swoop. This is this is great. Absolutely. 
And on page 19, I guess Rabbi Zuber wakes up again because he tells Supergirl, don't worry so much about him. Worry more about stopping those responsible. And Supergirl lets him know, hold on, Rabbi, help is here. And like for me, that's I just think it's cool when superheroes talk to rabbis. Yes. It's just so yes. fun that a superhero is like, hold on, Rabbi, we'll get you help. Like, it's just really neat. It's incredible. Uh, Yes, it's incredible. What's less incredible is when Supergirl confronts Blackstar, accusing her of sending men to firebomb the synagogue. Blackstar does not deny it. She takes full credit and, in fact, says, Of course, what else do their kind deserve? And as they continue fighting on page 20, the debate keeps going. Poor naive girl, you truly think them innocents? Ah, well, the world might never have come to this point had they not been able to dupe so many with their lies. You are but one of their dupes, Supergirl, and while I pity you for that, that shall not stand in the way of eliminating you. Right. So, gosh, it's so wild. Like, I know that fake news is sort of a, a modern concept, but really the, like, just the the sort of horrendous lies that black star is spreading this deep right. belief that like, no, no, no. Like you, you've been manipulated by the Jews into thinking they're innocent when they secretly run everything. And they're the reason the world is suffering. Like, it's just, again, it's, it's some of the most gross and dangerous anti-Semitism because there are genuinely people who believe this. Right. Right. And on page 23, towards the end of the issue, um, once again, Mrs. Berkowitz confronts black star acknowledging like you're my daughter Rachel. Yeah. And Rachel recognizes Mrs. Berkowitz as her mother. Yeah. And it, it's hard not to be like, wait, what the hell kind of strange turn did this story just take? Oh, it's a great cliffhanger that makes you want to read the next issue. It's the layout is one big splash page on one page with two boxes on top. And Mrs. Berkowitz says, Oh my God. Rachel, my Rachel. And then you get a zoom in twice on Blackstar and she just says, Mama. Oh, it's incredible. It's... And then next issue, you know, by the way, next issue, Starfall on sale October 17th. It's a date. So pretty close to when we're recording this. It's kind of cool. We're so close to the anniversary of these <laughs> yeah. issues. You know, it reminds me of the Moon Knight story we covered about Moon Knight childhood rabbi that turned yeah. out to be a Nazi yeah. pretending to be a rabbi. Yeah. And now we have this weird mirror version of a young Jewish girl who, as we're about to discover, survives the Holocaust and then grows up to be a Nazi. Right. Like it's just sort of, it, it, it's a little, it's like if a superhero having an elderly Jewish neighbor who is actually a Holocaust survivor and gets very upset about modern waves of anti-Semitism is like the cliche repeat story that we've now seen a couple times. The revelation that the super villain is actually secretly the Jewish character's child. Like that's like <laughs> the opposite of cliche. Right? right. Like we've gone into into like bonkers only in comics kind of storytelling. But when you were reading it for the first time and earlier she was like Ms. Berkowitz was like, what if she's my daughter? Did you just dismiss it as well? Or were you like, oh, that's what's going to happen now? 
Yeah, no, of course I was like, that's yeah. going to happen okay, now. But okay. I was also like, this is so weird. Right. You know, you end up thinking like, maybe she's brainwashed, right? right? Like, you know, we haven't gotten into the, what's what's actually happening yet. Right. But, you're, you know, my initial thoughts from years of reading comics might be some other, like in Marvel, I think there's a character named like Hate Master who can manipulate people into feeling their rage and hate. So maybe she was like taken over by some other Nazi villain. Right. But let's go ahead and conclude our Supergirl story with Supergirl Volume 2, Number 15, which had a cover date of January 1984, even though, as you just discovered, it was actually on sale in October of 1983. Love that gap. That yeah, exists. it's always so confusing. So this issue, Starfall, has the same creative team, with the one exception that now, lettered by Andy Kubert. Oh, a young, a young Andy Kubert, future DC and Marvel penciler. Yeah, a really an artistic superstar, I would say. Yeah. So on page two, we're picking up where we were. Blackstar comments that her mother died in Auschwitz four decades ago. On page eight, uh, Mrs. Berkowitz is separated from Blackstar again and gets back to her apartment. And Linda, who once again is the civilian identity of Supergirl, actually in a very sweet move, approaches Mrs. Berkowitz and asks to understand more about the Holocaust, admitting that just seeing things in movies is not enough and like that's amazing you know the 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 l the house of l they're a family of learners right like i just i loved seeing that she's willing willing to admit like oh i was wrong when i said like you shouldn't be condoning this and she's like turns out i don't know enough about this right um which i also i guess once again to supergirl's credit she like Kal-El, like Superman, like she's an alien. So maybe there's a beautiful way in which this whole idea of like racial hatred or anti-Semitism is just a foreign and bizarre concept to them. Right. Right. Superman and Supergirl also get to be white. So fair enough. (laughs) They have some privilege, but they're willing to unpack it potentially. Right. Um, Right. So Mrs. B tells Mrs. Berkowitz comments that, um, Basically, the experience was men are just making decisions about their lives. Uh, A man you don't even know. And he's pointing, saying, you shall live. You shall die. Not a soulless monster. A man. Um, I can't help but read that. You shall live. You shall die. I know that it's clearly a reference to lines at the camps where they would indicate one direction for going to the work camp and another direction for being killed. But it felt very... Unatana Tokev to me, the 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 liturgical poem that we read at High Holiday Time, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, which has a line right of saying like God's the only one who knows. Uh, who shall live and who shall die? And I, you know, I wonder if Paul was was being clever with his writing and and sort of purposely saying, yeah, in this case, it's not God making decision, but it's in the hands of an evil man. Maybe. Maybe Mr. Kupperberg was a Leonard Cohn fan. He was channeling Who by Fire, which of course is based on Natana Tokaf. So Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. On page nine, as Mrs. Berkowitz continues telling her story, and also just like how how strong and great that they've like built up in this way to reveal the story. Like we kind of we have the modern anti-Semitism and the hints at it. And like by the time at this third part three, when you get the story of her experience in the Holocaust, it like it lands with more weight than I think it would have if you just started with that. Yeah, this was really good slow burn, right? I mean, this was a series it seems like you really had to follow. You couldn't pick pick up an isolated issue. This was a very well uh written series. 
Yeah, well plotted. Mrs. Berkowitz talks about her husband, Jaime, who had a tailor shop. The family was happy. And then it was September, and the Germans overran our borders. We stayed with our home, business, friends. We knew it was a bad time, but who thought it could get as bad as it did? And that within months, we would be fleeing like criminals across occupied Europe. We ran for months, stealing to eat and finding places to hide. But the Germans always seem to be ahead of us, blocking our escape. This sounds like a genuine, real uh, record of like something that would happen to a survivor, right? And right. like you can feel the weight. And I think this is what I was referencing earlier, Henry, where I said, you know, when you asked, what did she mean by saying, you know, Auschwitz and other places? Maybe these are the other places, the like running around Europe while trying to escape. On page 10, they have encountered the Nazis and Jaime, uh, like a good father and husband, tries to protect his family. The Nazis kill him. Ida and Rachel are thrown into cattle cars, crowded in boxcars, and Ida notes that it's a way that they wouldn't have even, even treated cattle, which is also reminiscent to some lines that we got in the Captain America issues. Yes. Um, and then the two are separated. They're sent to different areas. And uh, Ida talks about the fact that after the Russians liberated the camp, she tried to find her daughter, but the records listed her as dead. And so she was shocked to discover not only did her daughter survive, but she joined the, the Nazis who tried to kill her and our world, she says, meaning like the Jewish world, right. which is also right. The sort of implication of like Judaism itself, the Jewish culture was very nearly wiped out. That's part of what genocide is. Do you think she also is talking about like even bigger, like Hitler's plan to control the world yeah absolutely yeah it could be yeah we're skipping forward to page 16 at this point now black star has kidnapped her mother and she's now giving her version of what happened and so we see in black star's flashback we see a young girl who's being grabbed by a man and his arm has the swastika insignia over it um and as black star narrates it the man grabs her from her mother's arms and from Blackstar's perspective, she's like, you just stood there and let him take me. And she's taken to these other children. And uh, it just so happens that Rachel was well-educated. So she spoke German, not just Polish, and understood what the Nazis were saying. She understood their fate. And on the next page, uh, Rachel insists that it's a mistake, that she didn't belong, that she's not actually Jewish. Um, and it actually, you know, it, it brought to mind stories you hear of Jews going to live with non-Jewish families and pretending not to be Jewish to try to survive. Now, granted, in these stories, it's usually before they get captured. A lot of chutzpah from Rachel claiming this while she's already uh -huh. in the camp right. and has already been captured. Right. Um, and in the story, at least, somehow she amuses the camp commandant and he ends up adopting her, even though he knows she's Jewish. Right. And she lives in the shelter and gets a better life. She's basically the child version of a capo. And uh, when the Russians liberate the camp, Black Star gets a twisted message from it. She decides the Germans were right and that it was cowardice that prevented her mother from saving her and that that same cowardice is what let Jews walk obediently to their deaths in the camps, which, ouch, it's a common trope yeah. that gets brought up that like the Jews were weak and allowed themselves to be led to slaughter. And I think, I think we've probably talked about this image of the weak Jews before in like our Sabra episode. Um, and some others, but you know, it, it's really awful and gross. Let, let me ask you a question about this: the the commandant 
taking her in. Generally, any Gentile that took in a Jew during the Holocaust and saved them from death is was like a good thing. In this case, is this did this guy basically kidnap her? Like, is anything about what he did good in that he saved this Jewish child's life? Like, or was it just like kidnapping? I know that's a tough question. I mean, but like, how are we supposed to interpret what he did there? I don't think we're supposed to read it as like an act of generosity, right? It's sort of an act of, it's showing the capriciousness of the guards, right? It's kind of going back to this idea. There's a man saying you live and you die. Uh She somehow managed to amuse him. And so he's like, well, you're going to live. I'm going to keep you in this way. And like, in a way that's sort of even worse because you have this group of people that hates the Jews just for being Jews but then it's like he happens to like one and so she ends up saving her but there's a weird way and i don't think they imply it in this way but is this so different than instances you know as we covered last episode of um of jewish women that were forced into sexual acts with right. nazis right, right? it's right. like they would right. choose jewish women and use them in this way you know does he really view her as human or is she just like a pet right. that he sort of right. keeps cuz she entertains him right. but then she turns out to be a pretty awful schmuck of a person also because she is clearly self-centered and cruel and you know surviving and blaming the others and i mean there is a weird irony that that there are some records and reports that like the people who survived in the camp were not the generous free spirits like a lot of the people that survived the camps were it was a survival situation they had to look out for themselves and so in a way she rachel reflects that so uh, it's really complicated and has a lot of layers to it so i i think certainly a, a bad person happens to take her in and i don't know if she would have always been so selfish or if it was sort of being brought up in and, and living around him that she was corrupted by and brainwashed by his beliefs mm-hmm. i i don't know mm-hmm. all right well either way it's yucky Either way, it's icky, and it's uh, unfortunately like the end of our Jewish content in here, which is just at the end of the war, um, the commandant who dies had prepared false papers to be able to escape. Uh, Rachel takes them, and she uses them to escape and assume an American identity and gain magical powers and become a villain who never ages and fight Supergirl, and it it descends into typical superheroics, but that's the end of the Jewishness. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Supergirl does stop by mrs b's window and smiles at her and they have a moment there's nothing jewish about it yeah we have a nice happy ending um and thankfully we're going to move from that happier ending after some really difficult material into much more lighthearted affair um as henry your moment has finally come we are not talking about supergirl supporting cast anymore we are getting right into the man himself the superman what supporting character are we looking at next Okay, so we're looking at Joseph Schumann. You might be wondering, who is Joseph Schumann? That's not a Superman character I'm familiar with. You would be correct. (laughs) He is not a very common side character, but his first appearance is in Action Comics 831, page 9, page 13. He appears with the kippah on his head. And so it's very clear that he's 
he's Jewish. And this, of course, is not to be confused with Brandon. David Shulman <laughs> from the Kitty Pride rep- episode. I just love that, like, the last names are so close. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we've got this guy, Joseph Schumann, who just works at the Daily Planet along with Lois and Clark and Perry and Jimmy and all the others. <laughs> yeah. So the the first issue we're looking at is Action Comics Volume 1, number 833, November 2005. The name of the story is called Depths. And I just want to give a little context, if I may, for a minute. This is during a strange period of, of Superman. The, the core creative team that had brought you Death of Superman, all that stuff, was all broken up now. And they brought back John Byrne, who had, of course, launched superman the modern superman with man of steel they brought him back to pencil and they brought in gail simone to write a bunch of like sort of random action comics i don't know if they're trying something out or just like some guest appearances but anyway depths is written by gail simone penciled by john byrne inked by nelson norm rapman larry stucker colored by guy major lettered by rob lay and edited by eddie berganza about whom the less said the better exactly yes (laughs) superman Joseph and Jimmy are at the Metropolis General Hospital, and Joseph has a favor to ask Superman. And Superman says, of, of course, if I can, Joseph. And Joseph very cutely says, see what it is, what the thing is. I'd like to invite you to my house for dinner. Shabbos dinner at my house. Hey! <laughs> I love it. I love love the fact that not only is Joseph wearing his kippa clearly an explicitly Jewish character, but he would have the Ashkenazi pronunciation. It's not Shabbat dinner right. at Joseph's house. Right. It's Shabbos dinner. And, and, of course, and of course, Superman responds, well, Mr. Showman, I don't usually... Joseph. Uh, Joseph, it's just that. Just dinner, Superman, please. It's important. Besides, my wife's the best cook in the state. And Superman says, with that million-dollar smile, I'm sure she is. All right, Joseph, I'll try my best. Because, of course, Superman will try his best. That's what Superman does. He tries his best. Yeah, yeah. God, can you just imagine (laughs) the week that on your, like, Shabbos guest list, it's like, oh, I'm having Superman over for Shabbos dinner this week. It's just like, like, do you think... Do you think that Joseph had an entire community that he would see regularly and they have it over and he's got a friend? It's like, oh, if I haven't been with you, come by us for Shabbos this Friday. I can't, I can't do Superman. it. <laughs> Superman over this week. Can I come? No, there's no room for you at the table. It's a very private affair. This is like, the kind of thing I love about superheroes and, and about Superman explicitly is just that this is the most powerful and most famous person on the planet that could vaporize the whole planet. But he's gonna he's invited to this nice man's house for Shabbos dinner and he's gonna try his best to go there. Absolutely. And we don't find out in that issue if right. Superman does go. In <laughs> fact, we have to wait two more issues to see that, which like I guess you could assume the invite went out on maybe like right. a Monday, and then we have like two <laughs> comics worth of stories. And finally, in Action Comics 835. Uh, from January 2006, we get it. We have fairly similar creative team. This is a contagion of madness written by Gail Simone, penciled once again by John Byrne, uh, inked by Nelson DeCastro, but he's just listed as Nelson for some reason, <laughs> colored by Guy Major, lettered by Phil Balsman, and edited 
by Eddie Braganza. So tell us, Henry, about the actual Shabbos dinner. Page 21, uh, Superman and Lois are kind of flying home and they have, they're have they having their little banter. And then you see a panel that says two nights later and Superman is landing and you see his hand ringing the bell of a mezuzah door. It, it looks like the mezuzahs and the as good a place as it could be and the and he comes in and they welcome him in joseph introduces superman to esther for being joseph's wife and superman of course apologizes for being late because he's so polite and she says nonsense we're holding shabbos dinner for you and the guest of honor is never late which i mean like on the one hand so sweet and very wonderful. On the other hand, I don't know how the Shabbos bride is going to feel about knowing Superman's <laughs> the guest of honor and not her. <laughs> I think for Superman, the the Shabbos bride will will understand. So then, of course, Brandon, the greatest exchange ever happens. Why don't you be Joseph Schumann? I'll be Superman. Happily. And uh, you can be uh, Esther also. Sure, 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 sure. So as they sit down to begin their dinner together, we get from Joseph, normally we make the blessing with wine, but for you tonight only, we got grape juice. That's very thoughtful, Joseph. I'm familiar with Kiddush. What? (laughs) So there's so many questions right now. Okay. First of all, Superman, did he he pronounce it as Kiddush or Kiddush? has to be Kiddush. and second of all if he's familiar with it does that mean he has been to at least one other shabbat dinner or even maybe perhaps a semi-standing shabbat dinner where because he's familiar with kiddush what does that mean does he know it right <laughs> right, right so like one option is and we talked about this earlier in this episode right um, Superman also spent a lot of time in the 31st century with the Legion of Superheroes. <laughs> right. Did Colossal Boy ever have him over for Shabbos dinner? Maybe Colossal Boy had the entire team over for Shabbos dinner in the far future, and Superman learned Kiddush there well, because he knew about it. Well, not to get specific here, but this version of Superman was never Superboy and never went to future to be in no, the Super. Henry, this, this is why you're on the podcast. <laughs> this is the reason for this kind of expertise in dc lore <laughs> i expected no less of you so in that case you yeah i either way either superman has been to a shabbat dinner before or i kind of love more the idea of like joseph invited him to shabbat and superman being a reporter oh. <laughs> right in his identity parquet was like i need to be prepared and know what this is and like looked up to it and like maybe did a little bit of research yeah. and preparation yeah and so it's like oh yeah i'm familiar with kiddush i understand yeah it, it's it's wonderful that he did the prep the, the other great thing about this is that joseph says normally we make the blessing over wine but tonight only we get it's but tonight for you grape juice so usually like that's for kids but that means that joseph knows this very famous thing about superman that he doesn't drink he says again in superman the movie so never drink when i fly and that's that's just a thing about superman so is that a thing that everyone knows about superman or is joseph such a superman super fan that he knows superman doesn't drink and so he wouldn't even dare open a bottle of wine for not that superman would care he would want them to <laughs> have one. right right but like we have super considerate hosts yeah. and super 
considerate guest. Guest. In other words, we have Mensch and Superman. Right. Right. Like, <laughs> they're kind of just like very sweetly being together. It's very cute, and we haven't talked about it yet. But not only that, but on this panel, what's Superman wearing? This is like the greatest moment of my life, Brandon, because we have <laughs> one of several pictures, canonical pictures drawn by the arguably greatest Superman artist of all time, top five for sure, of Superman wearing a kippah, holding a glass of wine over a loaf of challah and two candlesticks. Now, technically, the loaf of challah should still be covered, but... <laughs> But it is a very accurate portrayal of a Shabbat dinner, and Superman is wearing a yarmulke. I mean, come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I'm going to make a poster of it. I'm not kidding. Like, the the panel on the next page, we'll get to. (laughs) it's, It's the kind of image that you could probably show someone who didn't listen to her podcast and just be like, yeah, did you know Superman is Jewish? Here's the issue that proves it. Like, like, like it just, it's, it's pretty incredible to see Superman joining. And especially like, as far as I know, Gail Simone is not Jewish. Jewish. Like she's just like doing an incredible job. Like I'm, I'm, I'm baffled as to what prompted her to bring this character in. I know. I know. She, I love it. She, I mean, she is, you know, wonderful for inclusion. She's a she's she's an amazing writer who's done a lot of, of, of inclusive things in her writing. So, and John Byrne certainly is no stranger to drawing Jewish things. And in, in you know, in super remember, right. remember the he, reason the reason Kitty Pride is Jewish is because of his art. Right. Remember, Claremont says that it was Byrne. Byrne that's how Byrne drew her with a right Jane David, and that's so. So kudos to the that whole that that at least that main, main team. Absolutely. There. On the next page, uh, jo- Joseph and, and and Esther just fawning over Superman. Make sure he has enough food. Eat, eat. You know, she Esther says uh, you need lots of these kugels. They're delicious. Is that enough? A little bit more. I mean, it's just <laughs> taken right out of. How like how much time do you think there was? Like, is this like you need lots of these kugels? <laughs> They're delicious. I mean, I, a few more moments of silence, or is she doing it as quickly as you read it the first? Time? I think she's doing it as quickly. I think partially two things. I think again, also with Superman, everyone knows he has limited time, and so this is a truncated meal. I don't think he was there mm. for hours singing Zmirot and benching and stuff. I think Yeah, yeah, yeah. I this think, is the 10 minute Hagata style. Yeah, and yeah. rightly so and so thoughtful of him to come, right? Like let's just say for a second Superman could be with his wife right now. I mean, you know, he can't he couldn't bring her cuz then it would have to be him and Clark Kent. Um and by the way, I bet Joseph Schumann has had the Kents over the Kent Lanes over for for Shabbat dinner and Clark had to pretend that it wasn't like that's crazy, Henry. Right? What if that's why Superman's familiar with kids? <laughs> because Clark Kent was previously a guest in his home. I figured it out. <laughs> so anyway, all I'm saying is that like he took his time out of his busy time. Superman, who has no free time whatsoever, is spending his free time at the Schumann. He he agreed and he came. Like great. Fair enough. And wore a kippa and it familiarized himself with Kiddish. <laughs> Um, yeah, and th- and this looks like a Hamish uh, table. It's like it, it it's got all the Shabbos things on it, 
Right, right, right. We've got candles, a some discarded plates with some food on them. It looks like they ate pretty much all the things but the green things. And <laughs> the challah board is in plain view. It's it's just a, it's a nice Shabbos. It looks like a very inviting Shabbos table. It does. It does. So at the end of the meal, Esther makes the final offer of some dessert, right? So Esther says, uh, more Superman? Surely some dessert. And Superman's like, uh... And by the way, Superman doesn't need to eat. He just... You know, so. <laughs> and Joseph says, quit fussing, Esther. The man wants to know why he was invited here. Am I right? I want to show you something. And then at the bottom of this page, we see this perfect Superman, let's call it the Superman jawline shot of Superman wearing the kippah. That's the one I said I would love to blow up if i ever meet john byrne at a con if he ever happens to do one that i'm at i am gonna blow i swear to god right now i'm telling you on 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 this podcast i will blow up a picture of the of this panel of superman smiling wearing kippa and have john byrne sign that i mean i think that'd be a pretty amazing thing to have signed <laughs> maybe we can get you the original art page somehow maybe um uh, anyway so so it tells us the very the very end of the issue yeah, yeah so at the end of the issue they they finish talking joseph and superman are wearing their their kippahs the whole time and superman flies off and joseph and esther wave goodbye and esther says such a nice young man no appetite to speak of however and it's just adorable I love it I love the idea that it's like it's kind of playing into the stereotype of a Jewish parent where it's like even Superman himself is not above some level of like gentle loving criticism (laughs) from from the parents he doesn't eat enough Uh, this boy he flies around the world he doesn't eat anything you know this is this is sort of in many ways this is the exact opposite of the the supergirl stories we read but the same level of wonderfulness in terms of in many ways there's sort of cliche jewish tropes in here but they're not ones we've seen in comics before and they're not about the holocaust which is sort of sometimes the 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 go-to jewish thing in a comic yeah and so this is the opposite and this is so this feels so jewish a shabbos dinner what can get more jewish than that Right. I think this is our third Shabbos dinner that we've seen after one in the far future with Colossal Boy. Right. And of course, the alternate universe Shabbos dinner that Batgirl goes to, right. uh, where she meets uh, uh, young Miriam. So somehow DC is always doing the Shabbos dinner. So I don't think we've seen one at Marvel yet. But um, yeah, as you've said, just the bringing in of Superman into a Shabbos dinner, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. It like, I'm felling over that experience. I love the fact that it happened. And shockingly and surprisingly, uh, it is not the only time that we see (laughs) Shabbos dinner come up in Superman comics. Um, We have one more sort of brief moment to talk about, literally just one panel from a comic. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's from just a couple of years ago. Superman Leviathan Rising Special Number One. The name of the story is Superman Leviathan Rising, written by Brian Michael Bendis, Greg Rucka, Matt Fraction, Mark Andreco, penciled and inked by Yannick Paquette. So, at least there are other artists, but the specific panel we're looking at is penciled and inked by Yannick Paquette. Right. So the only this is I'm not going to explain anything about the story. It doesn't matter. We're getting a glimpse into the hubbub 
the bustle of the Daily Planet newsroom, and you you see Clark is futzing with his tie. He spilled his boba tea on, and you see in the background, but sort of what we're focused on, Perry yelling at Jimmy and saying, I need Lois Lane. Lois Lane would have broken this story, and we'd be home for Shabbat dinner. That's it. <laughs> but, like, why is arguably, like, Never in a million years would I think of Perry White as Jewish. Like, why is his frame of reference will be home for Shabbat dinner? And like, there's like the possibilities. Perry White is secretly Jewish. (laughs) Seems unlikely, especially given some like, (laughs) you know, I think there was like holiday specials and such where he's explicitly celebrating Christmas and like pretty clearly not Jewish. Possibility number two. Harry knows what Shabbat dinner is because Joseph Schumann works at the Daily Planet. <laughs> and he also has been invited over Shabbat dinner to, to get there. Possibility number three, Metropolis being a metropolitan city that presumably has a large Jewish population. Similar to New York, there are just certain aspects of Jewish culture that are well known. And so it's assumed that within the newsroom, people are like familiar with it as a concept. Right, like on a Friday when Perry's holding them, holding the paper on a Friday and they're like, Perry, we got to get home for Shabbat dinner. Like it's, we got to put the paper to bed. Right. Right. Like maybe one of his uh, editors or something is. Absolutely. Part of what's amazing is like, I'm so curious who wrote this part because you have Brian Michael Bendis. (laughs) We have our guys. Who's arguably one of the most (laughs) Jewish writers that we've had. Right. So I could see Bendis writing it. You have Greg Rucka who has written some of those beautiful Jewish content, like that Kitty Pride yard site issue, among others, right? Like Greg Rucka is, is the man when it comes to like intelligent Jewish writing, right. like incredible stuff. But then <laughs> even though I don't think he's Jewish, you also have Matt Fraction, right. who we haven't covered it yet, but Matt Fraction had a fairly recent independent comic called Adventure Man that features prominently in the first issue, a strange family that, is gathering together again for Shabbos dinner. Like that's another co- instance of Shabbos dinner. So like any of the three could believably be, have been the one to write this. I think that, well, here's the thing that's maybe curious. Mark Andreco, but I doubt it. Yeah, maybe it. Well, so first of all, it feels to me like Bendis. I don't know why it just feels like it. And he was writing all the like, Superman Leviathan stuff at the time. I don't, there's no way Perry White is Jewish. I mean, it would be incredible, but I've just seen so much evidence that he's not church and Christmas and basically that stuff that I don't think he's Jewish, but he does say we'd be home for Shabbat dinner. Whose home is he referring to? His own home? Jimmy's home? Someone else's home? Then if it's someone else's home, why would he say we'd be home for Shabbat dinner? It's. It- I mean, I, I think it's just like, in this case, an expression, right? Okay. It's like, you know, oh, sure. like I think I don't think it would be that different from like, you know, uh, I, I don't even know what it would be. Like, it wouldn't be a surprise. Like, Lois Lane would have had this broken story and we'd be home in time for Christmas Eve. We'd be home in uh, time for like church service. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think. Well, I don't think he literally means that they have a Shabbat dinner to get to that night. I think it's just like oh, an expression of oh. of speed. And that's why like the question becomes 
why would non-Jewish Perry use this expression? Right. And then that only feels that's that like that's what I think. I don't think there's a literal Shabbat dinner to get to. I think it's just like a cute turn of phrase, which again feels very Bendis to me. Interesting. Okay, so then is that implying that today is Friday in this panel? That like they're putting trying to put the weekend, they're trying to like put the weekend paper to before the weekend weekend comes to bed. Like maybe I would say I would say if, if indeed Perry White's not Jewish, all the more so I feel like it implies that it's not Friday, right? Like can, I can imagine, like I think it's just again an expression. Like can you imagine on a Tuesday, Lois Lane would have had done and we'd be home in time for Shabbos dinner mm-hmm. or for Shabbat dinner. But I don't know. Maybe it's a Friday. Maybe maybe that's the expression he makes. It, it's I, I have so many questions. I mean, I, I really need to. If I had one question to ask Brian Michael Bendis, it would be about this. What does this mean? What does this panel mean? Well, I know that it means that we have a tiny bit more Jewish content in the Superman comic. And that brings us to the end of the issues that we're we're sort of formally covering. We're looking at Superman Volume 2, number 54, from April of 1991. This is part three of the Time and Time Again story. The subtitle is The Warsaw Ghetto, written by Jerry Ordway, penciled by Jerry Ordway, inked by Dennis Yankee, colored by Glenn Whitmore, lettered by John Costanza, edited by Mike Carlin and Dan Thorsland. This is from like, I just want to say, Brandon, this is from like the heyday of me reading comics. I remember reading this live and being blown away by it and everything. But Superman is basically traveling, is lost traveling through time. And he keeps bouncing to different areas of time. He's in like prehistoric times. He's in whatever. So he bounces to the Warsaw ghetto. And I think the the reason why we wanted to mention this is because much like a Captain America issue, he, on page six, he said, Superman is thinking to himself as he's been, transported there and says from what i've seen so far this is all that's left of the polish city of warsaw and their ruins what i remember of history the germans divided warsaw into two sectors two sectors one for aryans one for jews the nazis called this the resettlement community but it was a little more than a way station for jews destined for death camps at auschwitz treblinka and belsen hitler's final solution eh? He, thank you encyclopedia superman right I mean, you know this is the way his brain works right like he's <laughs> since he's read every book ever in five seconds yeah. and and um he he encounters some jews and he 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 thinks more to himself warsaw's jewish district was supposed to be shut down by mid-may 1943 but here it's early june and there's still survivors being policed by the nazi ss and you know, and then later he's called an Uber bench and he's trying to like remember his German, um, which he right. doesn't have much of. It's, it's like, and, and basically, like the reason he gets into these like hyper specifics is that he starts to think that his traveling through time is already impacting the future. Uh, history potentially, right. could be changing things in this way. Right. And, and he is so moved by the experience and so moved by sort of seeing the Jews suffering that he decides even at the risk of changing the future and even at the risk of him never being able to go home again, um, he needs to do something to help. Right. 
right? right. Like he needs to get involved. He, and, he needs and, to do something. Yeah. And we're not going to go too much deeper. Usually we give you every panel. We didn't want to do too much because we've been doing so much that is sort of Holocaust based. And also like we're really, we're bringing it up more to get into an overall conversation right. than to dive into the specifics. Cause this one really focuses much more on, on like the Nazis than it does on the Jews directly. Right. And and so I think what I, what I wanted to say about that is that where we covered Captain America in depth there, he is actually liberating a Jewish camp Superman in these two pages that we, we talked about page six and seven, he refers to the Jews by name, which is something we don't, always see and in comparison to the captain america issues you know with captain america we were talking about how it sort of fixes it retcons and fixes a part of history that really is you know if this is a a a hero that's famous for punching nazis he must have liberated a camp or two in his time right we spent a long time talking about that last issue the question is the same for superman historically Superman and Captain America were punching Nazis on the pages of their comics at the exact same time. But right, never- these are two golden age heroes, right. like literally famous for punching right. Hitler on the covers and within the pages of the comics. But there's never anything about Jews, right? Now, so Captain America, I think in part in the 80s, they're fixing a story. Superman, that history was was restarted in 1986. So Superman was never in World War II. Now, the Justice Society were, and there's a whole other question there. They must have liberated the the camp or two, but maybe not. Um, and, And so this never was a part of Superman's history. So the way to do it here, I think what Jerry Ordway is doing and the the super team at large, headed by Mike Carlin, is trying to do the same thing that Captain America is doing, which is correct this part of history without screwing up the timeline and making sure it's still a part of Superman's history. That's just my read on it. Um, yeah, so they, and, so they write a little thing while well, he's in a time travel thing. So let's have him go back there. Right. And, and I think the sort of conversation that we're edging towards and that we are, we are on the brink of having is essentially like, why is it? that we have two such similar tales, right? The one in Supergirl and the one in Captain America. Why is it that we have a flashback issue in Captain America in which he liberates uh, Diebenwald and a a, um, time travel story in Superman in which he potentially helps to liberate the Warsaw ghetto? Like why, why do we have these sorts of things? And and of course it's, it's that these are, Captain America and Superman are arguably about as equivalent as it gets in Marvel and DC. Captain America doesn't have the kind of strength that Superman does, but I remember, you know, in in Marvel versus DC when the two companies had their crossover and fought each other, right? Like Superman and Captain America were the comparison points, right? Mm-hmm. It was sort right. of um you could maybe have Iron Man and Batman as the billionaires who uh who fight crime and then Thor and Wonder Woman patterned up but when it comes to the big three of marvel and the big three of dc captain america and superman are both paragons of the american way truth justice in the american way and so as you said we see these stories that are essentially trying to redeem both of them as later artists and writers struggle and grapple with the question of like well if the character was around shouldn't they have done something shouldn't they be involved why did they let this happen and so as you said we see these comics that that 
that draw it or that address it directly. Well, I, I just want to say another thing. I just want to point out, and I, I don't think we, I, we may have mentioned in the last episode, but it was very brave and revolutionary for what Simon and Kirby were doing and what Siegel and Schuster were doing for by, and la- later writers at, at, at DC already by 45 Superman and um, Siegel hadn't been drawing anymore. But anyway, um, that was very brave. And like, you know, I don't want to make it seem like I'm not appreciative of that. And that's a huge part of history. Sure. So, so much so that Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster were, the, the Nazis were aware of them. Hitler was aware of them. And um, they were actually in a little bit of danger um, because I, I just want to read an excerpt from my friend Roy Schwartz's Is Superman Circumcised, which we've talked about before. Yes, Captain America famously punches Hitler in the face on the cover of his first comic. But the truth is that before that, on February 27th, 1940, Siegel and Schuster published a two-page imaginary story in the pages of Look magazine to tell how Superman would end the war. He storms through the Siegfried line, that supposedly impenetrable fortification line between Germany and France. He twists Nazi candidates into pretzels. He punted the Luftwaffe out of the sky. He grabs Hitler and Stalin by the scuff of their necks. And this story predates Captain America. Superman was the first to do that. So, like that, that stuff is is I think amazing for what was being done at the time. And it's sort of like Claremont, Demetrius, Jerry Ordway are, are doing here. Sort of, it's sort of like Talmud. Like they're sort of adding on to the it's midrash. Sort of adding on to the the lore, the story. By of course, what this really is about with Superman and Captain America. Uh, fighting the Nazis is that they're also, uh, of course, they also saved Jews, right? Right, right. Th- there, there's an interesting sort of way in which, at the time that Siegel and Schuster were were making Superman comics, in a lot of ways, Superman becomes wish fulfillment. Desire. This is the the midrashic desire in a certain way for things to go differently. Right. And I guess there ends up being a question of, well, what happens? What is the challenge? They were writing in the midst of it happening. Right. So right. when you have the privilege of being decades and decades into the future, when Ordway is writing and when Claremont was writing, um, and when all these issues we've been covering lately came out, um, how do you? allow for that same level of escapism and wish fulfillment uh, without sort of dishonoring things by changing history entirely. How do you both allow these super characters to interact with Nazis? And of course they would then interrupt, but also again, like otherwise we'd be living in a complete alternate timeline of Captain America or Superman literally stopped the war and liberated all the camps in the way that you would expect them to, if they right really existed at that time. So it's, it's just sort of interesting. Like, that comic you're describing from the 1940s could in a way only come from the 1940s. I suppose until you get someone like Quentin Tarantino, who then makes a movie like Inglorious Bastards, right. which does decide to do a complete wish fulfillment right. where it's like, you know, history be damned. We're in an alternate world, but of course comic books deal with continuity. And so they right. can't ever, Marvel could never really write a mainstream continuity story where Captain America single-handedly 
ends World War II and saves right. all the Jews and prevents the Shoah from happening. Similarly, DC can't produce a mainline continuity comic at this point where Superman liberates every camp and saves millions of Jews who otherwise would have died because like history is history at this point. Right. Well, I guess it's lucky for Marvel and DC that Captain America was frozen before the war ended. And for DC, they just restarted time a couple more times right right right. <laughs> but as you said the justice society right. our eyes on you why weren't you doing more right i mean they, to the the credit they were known as the mystery men i think they also like they like did more like you know secretive things but anyway the, i did want to say one other there is another thing that's actually was pretty controversial about seven years after this uh 1998 and i remember i was in high school when this came out the four superman books did a storyline where each one was doing a sort of a stylized sort of story of a different era of superman and uh louise simonson and john bogdanov in the man of steel books issues 80 to 83 did a story where superman was transported to what appears to be the warsaw ghetto and holocaust but there is no mention of jews and they he actually and what's interesting about the issues is bogdanov drew them in the style of joe schuster and it's spot on it's unbelievable but there's just no mention of these people that he's saving or interacting with it's a similar story to the one jerry ordway wrote in superman 54 but there's just no mention of jews and this was a huge deal when it happened you know if twitter had existed forget it but like people were very mad i remember um, just a personal story. I remember being in shul on Shabbat and the rabbi who, the the rabbi that I grew up with, he was very interested in media and TV and movies and Jewish portrayal and those things. He would write a column of like reviews for things, movie reviews for things. He came up to me in shul and he's like, did you hear about these Superman comics? And I was like, yeah, I have them, of course, I'm reading them. He's like, and he sort of like, a, not attacked me, but was sort of like that blaming me but it's like you're the person i know that loves superman how could this happen you know they're not even mentioning the juice and i remember feeling like strangely like i had to defend superman as a comic book but also i also was outraged by it so it's strange and and, you know looking back at those so i I would you know i'm curious what people think of these now and i would love to get more of a story from you know wheezy and bog about that it seems like it would be a dc editorial thing that's what i'm assuming like a warner brothers like you can't do that kind of thing which is you know has uh is has roots in anti-semitism as well you know not not talking about talking about the holocaust or jews specifically as the victims so i just wanted to mention that i it's i think you know i didn't i don't want to end this coverage of superman on a negative note but I guess this is to say that there's more Superman stuff out there. There is nothing in great length and depth, but, and of course, please check out is Superman circumcised. You can read every reference, both explicit and implicit about Superman in Judaism. But I just wanted to mention that, 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 you know, there were three other issues that kind of had something Jewish adjacent. Yeah. And I mean, as we know, there's Jewish adjacency in a lot of comic books and there's just an added power when they get explicit. That's been our thesis throughout this podcast from the beginning. And it's nice to see it completely borne out. And sometimes those comics are 
heart-wrenching and tragic as we saw today with Supergirl. And sometimes they're just the delight of seeing Superman in Akipa joining his coworker for Shabbat dinner. And it's always fun to be able to dive into these and to discover what there is. We've got a couple different ideas for where to go next. So we're really hoping listeners that you will enjoy it. Uh, We should be getting it to you. Uh, hopefully not too late from now. Thank you for listening. As always, we've loved getting to have this super good time with you. And until next time, I'm Brandon Bernstein. I'm Henry Bernstein. No, no relation. relation. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Jewish Comics Pod, or you can email us at Jewish Comics Podcast at gmail.com.